Well, this is session 35 of our synchronized study in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's just jump right on in there. John chapter 9, verse 1 says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did the sin, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? In other words, they're under the presumption that since God is in absolute total control, bad things only happen to bad people, and only good things happen to good people. That's the presumption. There's Christians that think that way today. But verse 3, Jesus explains why this man was born blind. He answers and says, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. All right, folks. In other words, Jesus is saying a time's coming when I'm not going to be here on the planet anymore. And you, the church, you're going to have to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. But as long as I'm here, I'm the light of the world. So I've got to cram as much evidence as I possibly can into this short period of time that I have here. But concerning this man's blindness, he was born blind. And what Jesus is saying is it's not an accident. It was planned that way. Verse 6 says, When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now, folks, what on earth is that all about? Why doesn't Jesus just put his hands over the man's eyes and say, open your eyes and see, like he's done to so many others? There's three theories, and all three of them could be correct, folks. The first theory suggests that this man didn't have any faith. If you'll notice, he hasn't even asked to be healed. Another theory suggests that the reason why the man was born blind is because he had no eyeballs. And what Jesus is doing is he's using the raw materials in the clay and saliva to create for him his eyes. Everything about our body comes from the dirt. And I think that's a pretty neat theory. God's creating for him eyes through what Jesus is doing with the clay. But there's a third possibility concerning why Jesus is choosing to heal this man in this way. And it fits a pattern that has been reported all throughout the book of John. Jesus' first miracle was the turning of water into wine. Well, folks, why on earth would Jesus do that? Do you really think he cares about turning water into wine at a wedding feast in which pretty much everybody has had enough anyway? What was the point of that? Well, it was symbolic. Jesus knew he was laying out a symbolic model to represent what salvation is all about. He knew John was going to record it. And if you remember, we talked about this. Jesus told them to put water into six empty water pots of stone. And when the six empty water pots of stone was given to the head of the wedding feast, it turned out to be wine. Well, that's symbolic. Six empty water pots of stone. Six represents the number of incompletion, the number of man. Empty water pots of stone represents the condition of man's heart without Christ. Water represents the Holy Spirit. Jesus told him to put water into six empty water pots of stone, and it turned into wine. What is wine representative of? The blood of Christ. Well, Jesus might be doing the same thing again here, but in a bigger way. Look at this. Here's a man who was born blind, like all of us, folks. How does the song go, Amazing Grace? Was blind, but now I see. The lyrics to that come from this scenario here in this chapter. Here's a man who was born blind. And when did God first start dealing with him? According to the Lord Jesus, it was before he was even born. 
So this meeting inside time between Jesus and this man was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And notice who came looking for who. The blind man wasn't wandering around trying to find Jesus. Jesus came to him. So let's keep reading and see if the symbolism fits. Verse 6, When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And Jesus said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation, it means sent. So he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Clay is symbolic of the curse of sin because it comes from the earth. If you'll remember in the book of Exodus, Moses' staff was a symbol of God's judgment, right? What happened when he threw his staff on the earth or on the ground? It turned into a serpent, which is a symbol of sin. Why? Because by throwing a symbol of God's judgment upon the cursed earth, it's a throwback to Genesis 3.15, when God cursed the earth in the beginning. He pronounced that curse toward the serpent and made a prophecy. He declared war on Satan and prophesied that the serpent would bruise the heel of the Messiah, but that the Messiah would crush his head. Judgment is coming for the serpent. But anyway, the point is, clay is representative of mortality, the flesh, the curse of death, the curse of sin in general. So, Jesus puts this symbol where this man's affliction is. He can't see. So now there's a symbolic model representing what his problem is. But then, in verse 7, Jesus says to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation, sent. The name of this pool, when interpreted, it means sent. And people have tried to figure out what on earth that means, because it could mean any number of things. Does it mean sent by the Father, as Jesus was sent by the Father? Or does it mean sent, as in Jesus sent the man to the pool? It could mean either one of those things, folks. But what did water symbolize when he put water into six empty water pots of stone? In that scenario, water was representative of the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus just say at the Feast of Tabernacles? He told everybody, all those who come to me, I will give you living water. What was he talking about? He was talking about the Holy Spirit. So, if water is representative of the Holy Spirit, then that's why the pool was called sent. Because when Jesus left, he said, I will send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent to us to cleanse us of our sins, to baptize us spiritually, adopting us as his children on behest of direct orders from Jesus himself. Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit. So here's Jesus. He approaches a man who was born blind. He puts on his eyes or his eye sockets a symbol of sin itself, mortality, death, the flesh. Then he tells him to go wash in a pool, which is representative of spiritual baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the name of the pool is Siloam, which interpreted means sent. And it's at that point, after he does that, that he comes seeing. Let's keep reading verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, Well, he's like him. Okay, isn't that interesting? (laughs) I was listening to a commentator. I forget who it was. It was on the radio. I think it was J. Vernon McGee. But I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. He was saying, have you ever noticed that vacant look that a blind person has? Well, 
if that's how they behave their entire life, can you imagine how suddenly if they're able to see physically they don't look any different and yet they seem to have direction when they walk they have purpose as they move around you can see the light behind their eyes they're focused on things well this is the difference that the neighbors began to see they looked at him is that him is that this guy the same guy who begged and somebody said well now he looks like him but that's not him but then he says no i am he that i'm that guy verse 10 therefore they said to him, well how are your eyes opened Verse 11, he answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go wash in the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Now this is neat, folks. This guy has no idea who Jesus is. He doesn't know anything about the rumors, apparently. He doesn't even know about the controversy. Just He's just some dude named Jesus who came and put clay on his eyes and then he hears him say, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Verse 11, so I went and washed, and I received sight. Verse 12, then they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. This guy's got nothing to prove to anybody. He couldn't possibly care less what people think or what they know. All I know is a guy named Jesus came, put clay on my eyes, told me to go wash, and now I can see. Who did it? That's some guy named Jesus. Well, where is he now? I don't know. Verse 13, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Well, I wonder who they are. I guess the neighbors. Um, Obviously, the Pharisees up to this point have been uh, strenuously protesting the existence of this false prophet who claims to be the Messiah. And uh, recently, we just read that people were beginning to be swayed by Jesus, and they're starting to think to themselves, you know, is it possible that maybe the rulers are trying to shut this guy, Jesus, up because he really is the Christ, he really is the Messiah? So they bring this blind man, or man who was formerly blind, up to the Pharisees, possibly hoping that, hey, hey, religious leaders, you know, we know what you've been saying about Jesus being a false prophet and everything, but here's this guy who has been blind since his birth, and now he can see. What's this all about? And folks, that's a pretty courageous thing to do because at this point we know the Pharisees have been seeking to find Jesus so that they could have him arrested and have him killed. Uh, In John chapter 8, we just had a scenario in which they tried to set Jesus up so they could stone him to death. And they attempted to do so at the end of the chapter. So that's a bold move to make for whoever it is that, that brought this man who was formerly blind as evidence to the Pharisees trying to prove to them, look, maybe, just maybe, This man called Jesus really is the Messiah. Maybe this man called Jesus is sent from God. Maybe this man called Jesus really is the Son of God. So let's bring this guy who was born blind, who's now been healed, let's take him up to the Pharisees as evidence to see what they say. Well, the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. This is verse 15. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes. I washed and I see. Verse 16, Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Technicality, folks. Jesus made clay on the Sabbath, and technically, that's work. So therefore, Jesus cannot be of God, because he broke the Sabbath law. It never even crosses their mind that maybe their interpretation of the Sabbath is not what God's intent was. But anyway, let's keep reading. 
Verse 16, therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. While others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So they're coming to the conclusion that, you know, if this man Jesus was all the horrible things that you religious leaders say he is, then he would not be doing the things that he's doing. He wouldn't be giving sight to people who were born blind. He wouldn't be raising people up from the dead. He wouldn't be casting out demons. He wouldn't be healing folks of all kinds of insanities and ailments and diseases and terminal illnesses. And when you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, was he trying to get some insurrection going? Everybody take your pitchforks. We're going to take Rome. No, that's not what he says. You know what? The evidence that people are seeing doesn't jibe with the message of the religious leaders concerning who this guy is. So verse 16, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Verse 17, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. Interesting. Before he was just a man who he knew to be called Jesus. Now he's calling him a prophet. Verse 18, But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents. So now they think this guy is a plant. Verse 18, The Jews did not believe till they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Well, his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, you ask him. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jewish religious leaders, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. The Greek word there for put out, folks, would be equivalent to what we would call excommunication forbidden to return to fellowship verse 23 therefore his parents said he is of age you ask him so they again called the man who was blind and said to him give God the glory we know that this man is a sinner so basically they're saying okay fine you were born blind and you've been healed but don't give this man Jesus credit for it you give God the glory he answered and said verse 25 whether he is a sinner or not I don't know one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, Well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Ooh. <laughs> From that little bit of sarcasm, I get the impression that this guy is through trying to convince the religious leaders of anything. But more than that, he's not afraid of them. This man can now see, and it's not just light waves. It's the light of truth. This man's got the truth inside of him, and he can see things that he's never seen before, both physically and spiritually. And he's surrounded by people who are spiritually blind, and he's amazed. He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And then they reviled him and said, You were his disciple. But we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, But why? This is a marvelous thing, that you don't know where he's from, and yet he's opened my eyes. 
Yes, we know that God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. And since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. So if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Listen to that, folks. I love this man's boldness in his testimony. I wish we could see this kind of boldness in all Christian testimonies these days. It seems we spend more time apologizing to the world for offending them than standing up for the truth. And where's this boldness coming from, folks? I mean, look at this. Now the man is calling Jesus a direct and divine answer to those who worship God. Really? And if you'll notice in this sarcastic rant against these religious leaders, you will also hear a plea. He's exclaiming to them, How on earth, with all that you know, can you claim that this man who gave me my eyesight, how can you possibly claim that he is a man of sin, that he is a false prophet, that he's worthy of being killed? Where on earth do you get this ridiculous notion? Yes, I know that God doesn't hear sinners, verse 31, but if anybody's a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. And since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Verse 34, Well, they answered and said to him, You are completely born in sin, and you're teaching us? And they cast him out. So that's basically when you lose an argument, you just shut them up. You just throw them away, shut them up. And uh, they've cast him out. He's been excommunicated. He is now no longer welcome in any of the Jewish synagogues or any of the Jewish fellowships. But then in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, folks, with everything we've just witnessed here, remember the question that started this whole chapter. Why was this poor fellow born blind? You know, why did God allow this? Is it something he's done wrong? Jesus said, no. It's so the works of God should be revealed in him. Folks, when you read this whole chapter, it wasn't just healing his eyesight. It wasn't just getting him saved. But we have this awesome testimony of what a changed life is supposed to be like. Here's a guy who basically was speechless. He has nothing to say at the beginning of this scenario. Jesus seeks him out. He was born blind. But Jesus heals him and does it in a symbolic way to drive the point home to you and me. Now, we're talking about spiritual eyesight here. He's born spiritually blind. He's given the Holy Spirit after responding to what Jesus told him to do. And the moment he does, everything changes for him from the inside out. And people can see it. It's obvious. He doesn't run around giving his testimony. Listen to me. I'm a new person now. He doesn't go knocking door to door. People go to him to ask him. What's happened to you, dude? They're looking at him saying, "What is that the guy who used to be? Is that that blind guy? What's going on? And all he does is he tells them what he knows. He doesn't have to give this awesome prepared speech. He doesn't have to figure out how to convince people of the truth. He doesn't even care. All he does is answer the questions that they're put to him. And he just kept saying, look, all I know is I was blind, now I see. 
and with the truth of God in him, his boldness and courage gives him everything he needs to stand up even to oppressive religious leaders. Because if you know beyond the shadow of a doubt you've got the truth from God, then all of these people with their credentials, their robes, their positions of power and authority, they mean nothing to you. All I know is once I was blind, now I see. Well, too bad, sucker. You're excommunicated because you didn't renounce Christ when you got your eyesight, so get out. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And then Jesus said, verse 39, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Now, folks, Jesus has been telling people up until now that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Well, verse 39 is not a contradiction of that. With Jesus' first coming, he did every single act that he needed to do to save the world. Every man, woman, and child of all time. But because that's what his first coming was all about, then all those who reject the work of his first coming, they reject the work of their own salvation. A fireman doesn't go into a burning building to kill people. He goes in there to save them. But if they reject the fireman and they fight him and tell him to leave them alone, then they will burn up with the building. I use that analogy a lot because it drives the point home. The fireman enters into the building. He joins the people in their situation to save everybody out of there. You got four kinds of people in that building. The first type is what we would call the Bible-believing Christian who says, help Mr. Fireman. The fireman says, follow me. I'm the only way in or out of here. The fireman grabs him, takes him out. The second type of person in the building would be representative of the false religions who deny the deity of Jesus Christ, who say, we can get out of here without your help, Mr. Fireman. We know the way out. The fireman says, no, I came from the outside. I'm telling you, the fire is all the way around. This is the only way in and out. No, we don't agree with you. We have our own way. Well, those people burn up. And then, of course, you have the atheists who don't believe in the existence of the firemen, so they don't get any help. And then you have the agnostics who don't believe there's enough evidence to prove whether or not there is a fireman, so therefore they don't get helped either. The point is, the fireman's there to get everybody. You decide whether or not you're going to get out or not. Those in the building who profess blindness are the ones who get rescued and taken out of there. Those who think they can see everything and they know everything, they remain in their condition. They stay in the building and they get burned up. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Chapter 10, verse 1, Most assuredly I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter, or doorkeeper, opens and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, 
and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. See, that's what just happened with this man who was born blind, folks. He recognized Jesus' voice as the voice of his Lord. But those religious leaders were total strangers to him. The more they tried and threatened to steer his thinking away from Jesus Christ, he wouldn't have it. But anyway, let's look at this parable. Verse 6 says, Jesus used this illustration or parable, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. Let me stop it right there just for a second so we can back up and look at this. There's a whole lot to digest here. Folks, a sheepfold. I was under the misconception that a sheepfold was just a fancy word for saying a flock of sheep, but that's not so. A sheepfold was an enclosure. A sheepfold was an enclosure where shepherds would put their sheep in the night watches with other sheep from other pastures, other shepherds. Now, the porter, or the doorkeeper, he was the one that would guard the sheepfold at night. And what they really considered to be somewhat of a doorway or a gate, they really didn't have a door there. It was an opening that was guarded by the doorkeeper, or the porter. He stood there. During the night, he would sleep there. And what would happen is after the shepherd would bring his sheep and leave them in there at night, the next morning, the shepherd would come back and his sheep would be among all these other sheep. And there's nothing physically or visually to separate the shepherd's sheep from anybody else's sheep. But when the porter or the doorkeeper would open the way, then the shepherd would call out his own sheep by name and lead them out. Because there was an intimacy between the shepherd and the sheep. So Jesus used this analogy to explain what's going on between him and his sheep. Now as I go through this parable, the symbolism that's applied, you find out that there are three applications to this parable. There is the first coming application in which the sheepfold represents the nation of Israel. Of course, Jesus is the shepherd and the doorkeeper or the porter represents the Old Testament scripture written by the Holy Spirit, of course laying out predetermined guidelines that was agreed upon by the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son as to how he would appear. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, Jesus says. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And folks, we saw that fulfilled. He called his disciples by name. All throughout you see him going to people, calling them by name. It's personal. It was them. It was their very selves. He knew them before he came. And he led them out from the oppressive burden of the religious leaders into the freedom of his ecclesia. And verse 4 says, When he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Jesus went out before them, and he led. So all of this was fulfilled. The first application of this parable was fulfilled when he came. The second application of this parable is the last 2,000 years in which the sheepfold represents the world and the sheep represent those who get saved. Jesus is still the shepherd, the doorkeepers, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. 
We're in the night watches because Jesus is not here. The shepherd's not physically here. So the Holy Spirit is the doorkeeper. He's the one that convicts hearts. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Salvation is personal. It's you. It's your name. It's your very self that Jesus calls. It's personal. When he died on the cross, it wasn't just, oh, well, this is just for everybody. It was for everybody, but it was also personal. He was calculating in his mind the sins of every single person that he carried with him to that cross. In verse 4, when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Jesus is our leader. We're listening to him. We're reading his word. We're doing what he says. And he followed by example. He came here first. Do his sheep always follow him like they should? No. Sometimes they wander off and get lost. They don't lose the privilege of being a member of his flock. What they lose is the protection of being under his guidance and care. Well, what happens then? Jesus gave another parable earlier about that called the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus doesn't fold his arms and pat his foot on the ground, stopping waiting for you to come back. He goes after you. And he doesn't stop coming after you until he finds you and brings you back. And that's the second application. The third application is the one that gives me goosebumps. It's the prophetic application that applies to the rapture, in which the sheepfold is the world, Jesus is the shepherd, and Christians living in the world are the sheep. Now, it's in the night watch, so we're currently being guarded by the Holy Spirit, right? That's the porter, that's the gatekeeper. What does the parable say? Verse 2, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. Really? Are the sheep going to hear Jesus' voice at the rapture? I don't remember that. Let's look at that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Really? It doesn't tell us what he's shouting. It just says that he will descend from heaven with a shout. And also with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Strange, folks. There's going to be a trumpet of God, whatever that sounds like. And a voice of an archangel, we don't know what that archangel is saying, and there's theories about that, but the biggest mystery here is the Lord himself descending from heaven with a shout. He doesn't tell us here in First Thessalonians what he's shouting. I wonder if it's because Jesus has already told us in John chapter 10, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. They will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke of. Then Jesus said to them again, verse 7, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
Now in verse 8, when Jesus speaks of all those who came before him being thieves and robbers, he's not talking about Moses or the Old Testament prophets because they never claimed to be the promised shepherd. They pointed, just as John the Baptist did, to the promised one who was to come. In verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. Church isn't the door. Altar's not the door. Priest or father's not the door. Water baptism isn't the door. Taking communion isn't the door. Speaking in tongues isn't the door. Your pastor isn't the door. The Pope isn't the door. Mary's not the door. The Queen of Heaven isn't the door. Angels are not the door. And aliens aren't the door. Jesus said, I am the door. He said, I am the door. Not one of many doors. Not a door. But the door. If you're worshiping a Jesus who has convinced you that he's just one of many ways to get to heaven, you're not worshiping the real Jesus. Because Jesus here is recorded saying, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I love that he said in and out. In and out to find pasture. There's security and there's freedom. You can go in and out like you own the place. Your shepherd's watching you. Just do what he says. Follow his leading. You have no need to be afraid. It's not the sheep's job to keep itself. It is the shepherd's job to keep the sheep. And neither are we called to live our lives scared of our shepherd. I don't know why, but some Christian groups, there's not too many today like there used to be, but some Christian groups used to live their entire lives in fear of upsetting God. Oh, God's going to get me if I don't just do right. The sheep are not terrified of their shepherd. Verse 10, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. This is why all religions can't be worshiping the same God, folks, as so many people claim. Jesus is saying, if it isn't me, then it's a thief and a robber whose purpose is to destroy you and kill you. But if it's me, I've come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Giving his life for the sheep is what makes him the good shepherd, folks. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's what makes him stand out. Now, you know what's really cool, folks? What's really ironic about all of this? What did our good shepherd do to lay down his life for us? He became the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the shepherd that became a sheep himself, laying down his life for the sheep. He's our Lord. He's God. But he became a man, laying down his life for all of us. And because he gave his life for his sheep, he is called here in this parable the Good Shepherd. It was surprising to find out that later he's called the Great Shepherd. See, here he's the Good Shepherd for laying down his life. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 to 21, he's called the Great Shepherd who rose from the dead to care for his sheep. And then later in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, he's called the Chief Shepherd because he's the shepherd who's prophesied to come again for his sheep. Now these three offices, good shepherd, great shepherd, chief shepherd, were prophetically laid out all the way back in the book of Psalms. 
We all know about the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. That's the great shepherd who cares for his sheep in Psalm 23. Did you know in Psalm 22 is the good shepherd giving his life for the sheep? Read Psalm 22. I have no idea what David was going through when he wrote that, but you read that. It's as though it's coming from the perspective of Jesus himself as he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's how the psalm starts. They pierced my hands and my feet. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. So Psalm 22 is the first of a trilogy of the good shepherd giving his life for his sheep. The 23rd psalm, the famous psalm, is where Jesus is the great shepherd for caring for his sheep. You know how it goes. It describes the Christian life starting with spiritual rebirth and goes all the way to the resurrection. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul, leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup runs over. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will, future tense, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But right after that is Psalm 24, the chief shepherd returning as king. The king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. That blew me away when I first found this, folks. I found it in Schofield's notes. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24 is a trilogy of psalms. The Good Shepherd in Psalm 22, the Great Shepherd in Psalm 23, and the Chief Shepherd in Psalm 24. This is why I love the Bible, folks. It's just one big discovery like this after another. Back to John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus is talking. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Ooh. <laughs> I think Jesus is talking about the religious leaders here, folks. Verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I laid down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Wow. Nobody killed Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it again. That's the resurrection. I'm going to get killed. Three days later, I'm going to come back. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again, this command I have received from my Father. Now earlier Jesus said that there are other sheep, this is verse 16, says that there are other sheep that I have which are not of this fold, and them also I must bring. Several cults have been started by twisting this verse. But what Jesus is talking about, folks, are merely Gentiles of the next 2,000 years. 
He's not talking about other trips to America to talk to the American Indians, as some cults believe, and he's not talking about going to other planets to get aliens saved. He's talking about Gentiles for the next 2,000 years. And this is confirmed in Isaiah 56, verse 8, John chapter 17, verse 20, Acts chapter 15, verses 7 to 9, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 19, Colossians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. All of this backs up that what Jesus was referring to here when he talked about sheep and other flocks, he's talking about Gentiles of the next 2,000 years. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. He's talking about you and me. Do you realize what this is, folks? This is Jesus in the first century. He's talking about me from 1975 to the present. He's talking about all of us. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Wow. What a speech. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews. Yeah, I bet. Every time Jesus speaks, there's a division. There were <laughs> Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He is a demon. He's mad. Why do you even listen to him? But others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind and folks, we're going to stop it right there. Whew. That one was fun. Until next time, we're out of here. Take care.